have you guys, I haven't seen it yet, but maybe you have. I've heard that the movie A Case for Christ is really a good movie. Have any of, any of you seen it? Nobody? Is that at the theater right now, A Case for Christ? Well, if you haven't heard of it or you're not familiar with the book, I'll share with you how it's promoted by the, uh, the film's producers. This is, this is what they say about the show. They uh, promote it as a story of a seasoned journalist who chases down the biggest story in history and asks the question, is there credible evidence that Jesus of Nazareth really is the Son of God? And the, the crux of the story is, is retracing his own spiritual journey from atheism to faith, Lee Strobel, who is the former legal editor of the Chicago Tribune, cross-examines a dozen experts with doctorates who are specialists in old manuscripts, textual criticism, and biblical studies. Strobel challenges them with questions like, how reliable is the New Testament? Does evidence for Jesus exist outside the Bible? Is there any reason to believe the resurrection was an actual event? Strobel's tough, point-blank questions make this best-selling book read like a captivating, fast-paced novel, but it's not fiction. It is a riveting quest for the truth about history's most compelling figure. What will your verdict be in the case for Christ? And then you have to have kind of that dramatic music behind it. you know, dun, dun. Okay. But that's really the question, like, we're going to look at today, do we know that Jesus is the Christ? But before we can even get there, we have to ask ourselves how we can determine or actually know anything. Kind of like I was asking the kids, right? It's one of the most basic questions in philosophy. How do we know what we know? Because we all claim to know a whole lot of stuff, right? You say we know our name, we know our address. Most of us know the sum of two plus two. And there have been hundreds of books and thousands of classes taught on this subject of knowing, but if you break it all down to its most basic elements, there are really only two ways, two ways to know anything. Either by personal experience or someone tells us something, right? Two ways, personal experience or someone tells us something. I'll give you an example. Like I was teasing around with the kids, but we all know the word cat is spelled C-A-T, right? We know that because at some time in our elementary education, we were given that information by someone we trust, or we read it in a printed book. Now, we know the speed limit on the one-way street behind KFC in downtown Zephyr Hills is 35 miles per hour. If you don't learn that from the printed sign, a policeman will be very glad to explain it to you both orally and in print which is something I know now, not only from being told that those kind of things happen, because I know that I know from firsthand personal experience. (laughs) But that leaves the question of, how do we know whether an historic event actually occurred? Like, how do we know the Black Plague swept through Europe in the 1300s? How do we know Columbus sailed the Atlantic Ocean? How do we know President Lincoln was shot in Ford's theater? And there are three tests to figure that out. First, someone recorded it or they testified to it. Secondly, that someone, that particular someone, shows themselves to be a reliable witness. And number three, there's no evidence to the contrary. And that is, at least humanly speaking, also true of our belief in the trustworthiness 
of the central claim of Christianity, and that is Christ's resurrection from the dead. And his physical, bodily appearance to over 500 eyewitnesses, two of which we're going to be looking at in our lectionary reading today, which comes to us from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. So hear the words of the true and living God. Luke writes, That same day, meaning Resurrection Sunday, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But God kept them from recognizing him. He asked them, what what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? They stopped short, sadness written across their faces. One of them named Cleopas replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard all the things that have happened within these last few days. What things, Jesus asked? The things that had happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. Then some women from Our group of followers were at his tomb early this morning, and they came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing, and that they had seen angels who told them Jesus is alive. Some of our men ran out to see, and sure enough, his body was gone, just as the women had said. And then Jesus said to you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory. Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining to them from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. By this time, they were nearing Emmaus and the end of their journey, and Jesus acted as if he were to go on. But they begged him, stay with us. Stay the night with us since it's getting late. So he went home with them. As they sat down to eat, he took the bread and blessed it. Then he broke it, and he gave it to them, and suddenly their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and at that moment, he disappeared. And they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? And within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem, where they found the eleven disciples and the others who had gathered with them, who said, the Lord is really risen. He appeared to Peter. Then the two from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them as they were walking along the road and how they had recognized him as he was breaking the bread. So, you know, over these last two weeks, we've had a chance to really look at the good news of Easter, the best news, really, because new life for Jesus means new life for us as his disciples. And... New life for his disciples means new life for the world. A world in which death really has rendered life pointless. Right? I mean, people start projects, but they don't live to complete them. People make plans, but they don't live to see them realized. Families start and and grow and reach their stride, and then without warning, they're interrupted by a funeral. But if Jesus is risen, though, If Jesus has risen, he's broken through that barrier, and we can have hope. 
What the Apostle Peter, who's also part of our lectionary this week, calls a living hope. He writes in 1 Peter 1, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, for all of us. And that's the great news that you and I have today. But you know, for those folks living actually through the events, Easter wasn't so obviously good news. You know, for, for Pilate and for Herod and the Jewish leaders, a risen Jesus is very bad news. And for them, as improbable as Jesus' resurrection was, the idea itself must have haunted them. Because if the rumors prove true, then it means, as enemies of Jesus, that they have placed themselves in opposition to a power that's greater than the tip of a spear or the blade of a sword, and stronger than the might of Caesar and all of the legions of Rome. And that is a frightening prospect. So for them, Jesus' resurrection would have been something from a nightmare. And for Jesus' disciples that day, Easter was even more perplexing and at first more confusing than good. I mean, you think about it for a minute. These two men that we're reading about as they're talking with each other, they don't sound all that excited and encouraged by the reports of the resurrection, did they? Because even though Jesus had spelled out everything for his followers in advance, at this point they're still so bewildered by the death of Jesus that they can't begin to wrap their heads around the rumor of a possible return, even though, as we saw, they obviously know the entire gospel story because they had just repeated most of it to their new traveling companion. Right? They talked about all of it. They talked about Jesus preaching and his teaching and his powerful miracles right up through the crucifixion to the rumors of his resurrection. And you have to kind of laugh at the fact that they accused Jesus of being the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know these things. I mean, basically asking him if he's been living under a rock for this last few days, when in reality, he's the only one who really does. He's the only one who really knows what happened. So these two men, they know the story. They had those first two ways of knowing that we covered. They had the eyewitness accounts of the disciples and the women who told them what had happened. They had the personal knowledge and familiarity with the things that Jesus had said and he had done in the course of his ministry. And now our Lord comes and alongside of them and he explains to them the whole undergirding, the whole foundation of God's word that provides a context and an explanation for everything that they've seen and experienced. And to do that, Jesus doesn't just magically wave his hands over them. He doesn't perform a mighty miracle or, or even let them know who he is. No, he doesn't do any of that. He just leads them in a Bible study. Leads them in a Bible study. He did what we do here every Wednesday night at 6.30. That's a plug for Bible study. And every Sunday morning at 9 o'clock in Sunday school, he opened up the Word of God. And more particularly, he did what we've been doing most of this lectionary year, and that is tracing the scarlet thread of the redemption story through every single book of the Bible, beginning on page 1. And you know, as Jesus dives into the lesson here, he starts out right at the front. And he reviews the Torah, those five books of Moses from Genesis to Deuteronomy. Then he moves through the major prophets. 
and the minor prophets and the books of history and the music of the Psalms, teaching them that the entire collection of Holy Scripture is about the suffering and the glory of Christ. And you know, in that encounter, Jesus gives these fearful disciples the keys to Scripture, and he proves God's plan, a plan to save a particular people for himself from out of every tongue and tribe and race and nation on the planet. A plan that's been laid out since before the world began and that was read to them from the holy texts every week in the synagogue service. Where the the whole salvation narrative is given and prefigured either explicitly or implicitly through all the stories of their ancestors. And you know, maybe it's just me, but don't you wish that as long as Jesus had taken the trouble to explain all of these scriptures that the two disciples on the road to Emmaus might have actually written down what he said? I mean, just think about it. Our Lord Jesus himself gives this concise commentary on the Old Testament, and no one thinks to take quill to parchment. But, you know, I think there's an important lesson there. Because as one commentator has said, the message of the story of Emmaus is the triumph of experience over explanation. It's the triumph of experience over explanation. After all, even when Jesus had explained everything about himself to the disciples, they still don't recognize him. Instead, it was only when they experienced him through that memorial act of breaking the bread that they see him for who he is. See, it's not enough for them or for us, in other words, to know about Jesus. We need to know Jesus personally. Because you can, you can know all about the Bible. You can know all about the historic Jesus and still not know the risen Christ. Because just like Lee Strobel in that book I was talking about, when he started out, he already had some education, he had a background, and you know the vast majority of scholars and educated men like himself investigating Jesus, whether they are Christian or Jewish or atheist, are confident about the basic historic details. Right? They'll agree. Jesus was born during the reign of Emperor Augustus. He grew up to be a famous teacher and a healer in Galilee. He called a group of disciples and then proceeded to scandalize the religious leaders of the day by associating with known sinners. He clashed with the Jerusalem elite over his sharp criticism of how they managed the temple. And they will confirm that he was arrested, tried, and crucified by the Roman prefect Pontius Pilate. And very shortly afterwards, that he was declared by his first followers to be the Messiah risen from the dead. And you can can intellectually affirm all of those things without relying on religious faith. Because we have sources close enough in time to the actual events to declare all of those things to be historic facts. You can apply the normal tests of knowledge to this story, just like any other historic event, and you'll find that we possess exactly the type of evidence you would expect if the core of Jesus' story is true. But the only trouble with that is there's no multiple-choice quiz when you get to the gates of heaven. It won't be about passing a Bible knowledge test or a history lesson. It won't be about having all the right facts to win in an argument over apologetics with someone. It it won't be about any of the things we know that we can know because all that we're going to need to know is the one who has known us since before the creation of the world. Some of you may have heard of Reverend S.M. Lockridge who died in April of 2000. He served for many years as the pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in San Diego, California. Um, 
Have you heard of him, John? John, He's the guest lecturer at several schools and universities, and he was actually on the faculty of uh, Billy Graham School of Evangelism. And he was uh, very active in the civil rights movement, and his, his church there in San Diego hosted a lot of famous folks, including Dr. Martin Luther King. But the thing that Lockridge is best known for is a message he preached called, That's My King. It's actually an hour-long message, but the, the part of the sermon that he's most remembered for is his three-and-a-half-minute description that he delivered of Jesus Christ at the end of the message and his repeated question to his congregation of asking them, Do you know him? And I had planned on letting you hear it in his own words, but our internet gave out. So thankfully I have the text of it here that I'm going to read to you. So at the end of his sermon he says, My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his shoreless supply. No barrier can hinder him from pouring out his blessings. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands in solitude of himself. He's august. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He is the highest personality in philosophy. He is the supreme problem of higher criticism. He is the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the cardinal necessity for spiritual religion. He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of every good thing that you can choose to call him. He's the one and only qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder, do you know him? He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He discharges debtors. He delivers captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He rewards the diligent. He beautifies the meek. He regards the aged. I wonder, do you, do you know him? My king is the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the path of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway to glory. I wonder, do you know him? His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. And he says, I wish I could describe him to you, but he's undescribable. He's incomprehensible. He said, you can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off of your hands. You can't live without him. And you can't outlive him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him. But they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't kill him. Herod couldn't find any fault with him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? Do you know him? So do you know him? Because knowing Jesus is more than memorizing facts. It is believing that 
in his person, as Dr. Lockridge said, is the supremacy of all things, and then just simply laying our lives down at his feet. It is about connecting at the very core of our being with the one who created us and saved us, and about our need to turn to the real source of wisdom and knowledge, which is Jesus himself, who, who graciously reaches out so that we can have true communion with him as he opens our eyes to the reality of his presence. A presence that we often fail to recognize even when it's standing right in front of us. You know, one scholar has said that our, our problem is not a weakness of visual strength. It's not the optic nerve that is deficient. The deficiency is in our hearts, not in our eyes. He said we cannot see God precisely because he is holy and we are not. And just like those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, no amount of Bible study, no amount of firsthand exposure to Christ's apostles and followers, or even the evidence of the empty tomb could convince these two men that their Lord had returned. It took Jesus himself to open their eyes and to demonstrate to them and to us that apart from the sovereign intervention of God's grace that we are dead in sin, we are deaf to the message of the gospel, and we are blind, absolutely blind, to the light of truth. That's why Second Ephesians said, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. And he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. As brothers and sisters, the good news of the gospel is not something that you and I can piece together. It is not something we arrive at because we are holier or smarter or more well-educated, because it comes to us when we aren't even looking for it. It happens when we're walking in the opposite direction. It interrupts our human plans and intentions and catches us completely unaware. When Jesus Christ opens our eyes to the truth of who he is and what he's done. And it's, it's only when Christ comes alongside of us and reveals himself in his word and it's only when the Holy Spirit burns that redemption story of Jesus into our hearts and then all you have to do is ask him to stay because the hour is getting late. Jesus said in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and will sup with him and he with me. So I ask you today, do you know him? Or do you just know a lot about him? Do you know that he walks with you and talks with you? Can you testify to his presence in your life? Do you have fellowship with him? Do you recognize him in the breaking of the bread? Has your experience been so real and so moving and so life-changing that it causes you to completely turn around from the direction that you were heading just so you can testify to the risen Christ? Because if it has, then you'll know. You'll know that you know him. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we ask you that you would send your spirit, Lord, to make yourself known to all of your sheep. We ask you, Lord, that you would send your, uh, your grace forward, that you would open hearts, that you would unstop ears, that you would uh, awaken blind eyes, and that your name, Father, would be glorified so that as a people and as individuals, we would just fall before you in gratitude for all that you have done for us. In your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.